everyone. Welcome to the Glad Trad Podcast. I'm Rudy Carlos. And I am Jordan Pacheco. And today we're joined by two special guests from Down Under. We have Thomas Massey and his cousin David. David Massey as well? David, yes. Okay. We're related. Yeah. Same last name. First cousins. <laughs> and uh, Thomas has a, a really interesting podcast. He had us on a few uh, weeks ago, uh, which is the Lounge Room Chats with Thomas Massey. So check that out if you uh, want to get some more of his content. Uh, Thomas and, and, uh, and David, for those who aren't um, familiar with you, could you give us a brief intro- introduction on uh, who you are and what you do? Sure, definitely. Sure. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll jump in. Thomas, um, so first. yeah, Tom, uh, I'm a 27-year-old cradle Catholic from Brisbane, Australia. There's uh, American American heritage, American blood, American ancestry on my mother's side. So I'm a I'm a diehard Yank uh, when I'm not when I'm when I'm not Australian. Um, hey, right said, li- live in Australia, so I love it. Uh, it's my home. I've got wonderful wonderful family. I'm honoured to be joined by uh, one of my cousins today on your show. Um, heck, well, what, what do you want to know about me? I consider myself to be sort of interesting, but a lot of people consider me to be boring. So what I would tell you um, might depend on what you want to know. David, what can, what can we tell them? Mm-hmm. Well, you're a dual citizen. I am so a dual citizen. You are, you are an American citizen. So mm-hmm. that's, that's interesting. It. Hey, brotherhood, mm-hmm. um, come visit mm-hmm. us. Oh, heck, wouldn't that be nice? <laughs> wouldn't it be nice if be the borders cool. were open? Um, there's, a, there's a song in that, I think. Um, but now, no, no, I just want to make an injection. Uh, the borders are open, but only if you don't want to do it in any sort of legitimate fashion. So if you want to just walk across, man, I mean, they, you know, there's no more horses <laughs> or anything to worry about. So you can. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. We, yeah, we, we you, might you're have... not likely to run into Kamala. far from yeah um but no you you guys were correct and thank you for the shout out uh for the the podcast the lounge room chats uh david works really closely with me on that as does um david's brother michael um we've just sort of expanded we're having a little bit of fun with it we've got a beautiful website the catholic corner mm-hmm. um which is sort of the umbrella platform where we've got our podcast a little bit of written content and the the video side to what goes on uh on the the podcast but we we love it we're both very passionate uh catholics and that's probably something we'll, that we'll talk a little bit more about throughout the uh the podcast but um i'm, I'm sure you'll find out more about both of us as you ask questions and we embarrass ourselves giving answers. Yeah. And so uh, here's we, uh, to that. We made a mistake because we asked you to discuss yourself a little bit, but what we really should have done, Rudy, is probably should have just asked David to tell us about Tom because uh, that yeah. would make a lot more sense. We want those first cousin <laughs> deets. <laughs> so, so David, tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself because especially with lounge room chats and don't worry, we're definitely going to recommend all of our subscribers. Go ahead and check out the podcasts and also the website too. The Catholic Corner is a great website and I think a really good resource and belt for the traditional Catholic movement. Uh, David, you're more behind the scenes with this kind of thing. So why don't you tell us a little bit about um, wh- where you're at, you know, what your kind of story is in that kind of regard, because this is this is your this is your 20 seconds of fame before we, we just yeah. take everyone off. So <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, so I'm I'm a bit older than Tom, so I'm I'm 36. So 
when when we were growing up, there there was a bit of an age difference, and I can remember when you know teasing, beating up on Tom, you know, when I was the <laughs> the big cousin and he was the the little toddler, little, little, little cousin, biter. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's the one, one of the great things about having a large family and, and we all together, I think have 25, um, or our grandparents had five sons and they had 25 children. So, so we all grew up in the same location with, there was 25 of us. Um, and we were all very close as a family. Um, and yeah, it's, it's great now growing up. I, I would never have said I was really close to Tom when we were younger, just because there was that age difference, but you know, grow up now we're both adults, both, um, Catholics who take that very seriously. And it's, it's been great over the last couple of years to, um, start working a bit closer with Tom, um, on the lounge room chats. I think I was one of the maybe the second person he interviewed. Um, and I just got a call out of the blue saying, hey, I'm doing a podcast and do you want to go on? So it, it was- That was, it was, that was the first a, time I'd spoken to David in probably 20 years, do you reckon? <laughs> Is that nah, true? Not, little, not little, little bit of a joke, little bit of a joke. Yeah. But, um, um, yeah, so my involvement's yeah been more so hoping to provide a little bit of um, input, a little bit of insight, a little bit of guidance behind the scenes. Um, but I'm I'm more a a writer, um, so I I do enjoy the writing side of things. Um, I haven't gotten much content up on the website yet. Um, but I do intend to to start ramping that up a little bit. But um, for example, my my dad and my brother are both writers as well, and they've both had content published at One Peter Five and The Remnant um, publications like that. So my my specific family has a bit of a writing background, which um, where I, I enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. That's so that's more so my involvement with um tom's podcast and i've He's... been visited by my oh. youngest daughter here oh we're gonna pull a taylor marshall rudy yeah, let's see uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh that's i might too my, my baby needs a diaper change. this uh not not planned yeah <laughs> i'm gonna make a, I'm gonna no a quick problem. stash here just for everyone's mm -hmm. ease so don't worry we have unlimited minutes and on top of that um i'm recording all of our audio separately so don't worry if there's a stumble there's one thing oh my oh, gosh she's what a beautiful beauty. hello madam hi she currently has a cast on her leg oh uh, poor girl what happened but the she's, kangaroo got she, her. she broke her leg recently but <laughs> australia is dangerous yeah, <laughs> it was her brother that was dangerous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Which actually, yeah, that actually gives us a good segue too. And we'll we'll start with you, Tom. But mm. you know, again, we I was we were speaking a little bit before the show, but for us, really, genuinely, as well, there's there's three Yanks, I suppose. And David, mm. I don't know what we're gonna do with you, but genuinely, I think <laughs> it's kind of interesting, really engaging, especially with fellow Catholics, uh, people who we share a kind of a, you know the common heritage common kind of historical kind of tropes with, even though we're, you know, they might be the Canadians or the English or the Australians or something. So can you just give an overview with you, Tom? We're so used to kind of the Catholic conversations 
here in the United States. And, you know, we, mm. you know, and for us, we have little echoes of what Catholicism is in all the other parts of the world. Um, and it's not through lack of trying or anything. It's just, there's, as you know, there's just so many regional battles that we're all just trying to settle. But starting with mm -hmm. you, will you just tell us a little bit about what your upbringing in the Catholic faith has been? And if you, both of you, when it gets to it, can speak for an entire overview of not just a country, but a continent. Um, but the state of Catholicism in Australia, because we hear a lot of chirpings, some of them very positive, and also stuff that sometimes is really kind of hard to fathom, specifically in parts of the United States. Mm -hmm. That's that's such an interesting question because that that calls into well things that need to be discussed at not only you know Catholic heritage, uh, individual personality, but also national personality. Mm -hmm. That's that's where it gets nuanced and interesting. Um, in terms of my individual experience, um, you know, it's going to be slightly different to David's, although we do have a lot in common because our our immediate family played a. David will recall this being older, uh, somewhat better than I will, um, play, played a large role in really the establishing tradition in those early days. Yeah. Um, back uh, the, the fallout from Vatican II, our grandfather was a bit of a heavy hitter in that role um, in, in that time. But my, myself, um, family, I think that, was, that would be the word um, that I would use to describe my upbringing and my Catholicism. And that's something that is, is quite interesting in terms of national stereotypes. Um, you look at, you look at Europeans, you look at Americans, you look at Australians, and there are things that, you know, you, you, you think of Italians or maybe even David Argentinians and big, loud, warm, passionate, um, a lot. They're quite similar from, my experience with American heritage, Australia, nationally more kind of reserved, but there is across the board, a passion for family. And over time, things that I've sort of been thinking about are how much of these things are actually national traits mm -hmm. and how much of them are actually common Catholic traits mm -hmm. that have been sort of latched onto in different ways. Um, but that, that would be, uh, very, very warm family upbringing. Um, my father was extremely passionate about Catholicism, uh, as was my mother, traditional Catholic family on both sides, which I understand to be quite unique, uh, not only to be, you know, zealously Catholic on both sides, but traditionally so. Uh, growing up, I definitely didn't appreciate that the way I do now. And when I say, you know, the way I do now, of course, there's still a long, a long road to hoe ahead. Um, but I had very little appreciation for it. I knew that's what we were. That was part of my identity. Um, but I was probably like every other kid. Um, it got tiring at times. Um, you said your prayers, you went to mass. Uh, it probably wasn't until... Um, started playing on a few sporting teams where I saw my, my met my first person who wasn't exactly like me. Hmm. And then thereafter, you're exposed to an increasing number of people like that where your eyes are just opened and you go, wow, um, you know, I live a very peculiar kind of lifestyle. And the more people you meet, the more exposure you had, you go to school, you go to university, um, 
retrospectively, you look back and it's a completely different perspective uh, you have at 27 than you do when you're, you know, maybe 13, 14, mm. and, uh, you know, teenaged attitude. Um, but very staunchly Catholic family. That, that would be my personal experience and I'm very grateful for that. Um, this, this might be an opportunity to sort of throw it to David because it's very difficult to talk about our Australian family Catholic heritage without talking about, you know, I think our, our fathers and our grandfather um, because that, that to me is such a pivotal element in who we are but also it ties in kind of neatly with, I think, um, the, the story of traditional Catholicism within mm. Australia, um, because that was a, that was a wild ride. Um, and mm. there was some very, some very, very interesting stories. Well, please, then, by all that. means. Yeah. Mm. Um, I'll, I'll follow on from, from Tom there. Um, it, it's, it's a very good point, And I think a very necessary point to, to mention that, people like Tom and I who have grown up as traditional Catholics, we've never known anything different. You know, we, we didn't merit that. We were fortunate to be born into traditional Catholic families from the, the very beginning. Um, but looking back and, and thinking about that upbringing, it's, it, I, I look back and I go, well, I didn't appreciate it really for what it was either because it was, it was all handed to me. It's, it's not an intellectual decision that, that I'd had to make. Um, it was given to me and, and you, you live that way. And I was very fortunate to have, yes, a very staunch um, immediate family, but extended family as well. And that, that was a really big support for all of us and, and helped keep everyone sort of on the, on the right track. Um, but when you're growing up in that environment and, and you're not, you, you've never experienced the other side, it, it's just what you do. And, and it, it, it's very easy, I think, to, to um, <clears throat> sort of get complacent um, and, and just, it, it's almost just part of the furniture that this is what you do. Um, and, and it's been interesting to reflect on that. And I think, for, for us who've grown up like that, it's very important to, to make a concerted effort to, to look back at the history and, and, and understand why, why it was that, that my parents were traditional Catholics, you know, back when they were married in the mid-1980s. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. Why is that? And, and go back and, and over time... Um, our grandfather died in 1990 at the age of 64. So he, he passed away fairly young. So I, I don't have too many memories of my grandfather, but I have spoken to my grandfather and my father and uncles in, in you know, since I got to adolescence and, and you start to realise why is it that you do what you do? And, and at some level, you need an intellectual, at some point, you need to come to an intellectual certitude um, rather than you're doing it just because that's how you've grown up and that's what you've been surrounded with. Um, so I, I suppose I can give a brief background of, you know, the, the situation in, in Australia back in, you know, the mid-1970s. Um, 
you know, all of these discussions come come back to the Second Vatican Council and, and the introduction of, of the new mass. And th the reality is that's sort of just the demarcation. Um, and my grandfather at the time, my dad still says that he, he doesn't know why. Um, and my grandfather couldn't put specifically a finger on it, but he just felt uncomfortable with what was happening. Yeah. And, and especially the, the introduction of, of the new mass that that really just whether it was just this census fidei that that didn't mm. quite gel with what was going on but he sort of went off on a limb you know not not necessarily with the support of his siblings but he didn't really want to go along and so he started seeing and hearing some things in the early to mid 1970s that he just really felt uncomfortable with. And it got to a point where um, he, he had a, a parish priest deny the real presence. Mm. Um, and and there, there was another occasion where he and, you know, my father and uncles were denied communion when they were kneeling down. Mm -hmm. the, the priest said, no, you have to be standing up and you have to be receiving in the hand. Sound familiar? Um, yeah, exactly. So it was those sort of um, moments that really clarified for our grandfather that something wasn't right and and he didn't want to go along with, I suppose, the orientation or the, the spirit of, of the Second Vatican Council. Um, and you know, disclaimer, what Tom and I both um, grew up in the Society of St. Pius X, um, which, you know, somewhat controversial topic. Um, uh, I, I think, I think it's, it's in a sense becoming less so now, um, but, you know, it, it, was, it was a controversial thing back then. And our grandfather, so... Archbishop Lefebvre actually came out and visited Australia in the, I think it was the late 1970s, um, just for a visit, did a, did a bit of a tour of Australia. This is before there was any presence of the society in Australia. And our grandfather went and saw some conferences that he gave and, and spoke to him a bit. Um, and I think, Archbishop Lefebvre returned to Australia in the early 1980s and our grandfather spoke to him and said, you know, we're in a situation where there's maybe two elderly priests who have mm -hmm. almost been cast out, one, one a diocesan priest, one, I can't remember the order that he was in, but effectively been removed because they wanted to continue to say the Latin Mass. Wow. And they, they were about the only option. Um, at the time and our grandfather went and spoke to wrote to the archbishop um, and said can you send priests to Australia because mm. we just barely have any option of, of a Latin mass which sort of indicates the the extent that there was the suppression of the traditional Latin mass um, and the archbishop wrote back 
and said, yes, once if you can um, effectively establish a parish that will have enough parishioners to be able to maintain a parish, I will send you um, a priest. Um, and so I think it was around the, the mid 1980s, um, just from forming alliances and being in contact with other like-minded people who, who wanted, um, you know, a, a real Catholicism. They, they wanted priests preaching about the four last ends of the four last things and, you know, um, teaching correct um, sexual morality and, and various things like that. Um, so formed that and wrote to, to the Archbishop and said, well, we have this now. Um, and so now you need to hold up your end of the bargain. And the, the Archbishop wrote back and, and said that um, he didn't have any priests available. Um, that, you know, he, he was stretched thin, obviously. Um, but my grandfather, he was um, a very obdurate um, and persistent man. And he, he wrote back and basically said, well, you promised. So I'm holding you to your promise. And so um, he did end up sending a priest, I think, think Father Jared Hogan, who's actually stationed, he's somewhere in the United States now, um, uh, came to Australia in the, I think it was around 1983, 1984. And that, that was sort of where it, it began. Mm, that's so fascinating. So even in Australia, there was, um, you know, we were just speaking about this before we started recording, but we also, I mean, we we as American Catholics have this sort of um, this perspective. This is what what Jordan was saying that we have this sort of perspective of the fight that we're fighting here, and it has its own particular sort of nature to it, right? The sorts of problems that we have in America uh, versus all over the world, but um, we seldom ever hear the stories of the changes or how they were implemented in other countries. So it's fascinating to be able to talk to you guys about this. Um, to the best of your knowledge, um, how were the liturgical changes um, uh, accepted by the, by the people? It seems as if, um, it seems as if, I mean, it was universal everywhere. You know, there's a, a massive suppression. There was no, no Latin mass, maybe day, day, day to night, kind of difference um what you're telling me in that story uh, you're saying that you're saying that it was just completely suppressed like to the point where there wasn't there wasn't any priest besides those two priests that were mm -hmm. offering the uh the latin mass well we we were talking about this off air but um once again it's so good to have david here because these are things that David, <laughs> he, he knows. And then I throw in two cents worth in terms of, you know, observations. But back then, my recollection of the, the stories I've heard was, you know, families driving ridiculously long distances to have mass in rooms where the location wasn't disclosed. Like you, you almost hear stories of people doing things out of, 
you know, in, in secrecy out of fear of suppression. And I'm not sure whether those are just stories that I've romanticized in my mind to create that feel. I'll let David comment on that, but you really get the impression yeah. that it was, it was a very big deal. And that was something so, sort of that, that this issue was the genesis of the podcast that David and I work on. It was me getting to an age where I thought you take this seriously. And so it's probably worth scratching away at the surface and talking to those that came before you who either lived through that time or inherited the, the side effects um, of that, that whole period. And you, you, you want to learn, you want to see what effect that has had on you. And so through talking to people and talking to David and reading some of those stories, it really opened my eyes to how much of a huge event the changes were. Like I grew up hearing my grandmother mm -hmm. talk about the changes, the changes. And as a kid, you roll your eyes, you go seriously, like old timer. Um, you know, I'm sure that was important to you. But, oh, and the then Vatican said, this is fine, grandma. It, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, as, as a kid, those things just, you know, you're worried about other things. You're mm. a little bit of maturity you know, maybe life kicks you a little bit and you go, I, you know, I need to, I need to become more interested in this. Mm -hmm. And you acquaint yourself with the stories and you go, wow, that was socially, politically, religiously. That was a, my impression is it was a really tumultuous time, especially, especially in Australia, because we wouldn't have had the resources. We wouldn't, we don't, we don't have that um, national character of, you know, the, the American fighting personality. There was a massive fight out here, but it was on a lot smaller. I, I get the impression there were far fewer mm. devotees of tradition in Australia than possibly there were in America. David? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with that. I mean, you look at Australia has currently, what, a population of about 27 million. Mm. Um, back, back then, it would have been maybe less than 20 million. Um, so in uh, yes a, a large geographical location but um in terms of people much much smaller than than the united states mm -hmm. um but yeah from, from speaking to people and and family um i think the overwhelming majority of of catholics and you know lots of of good well-meaning catholics and and we have a lot of our great aunts and uncles who who still practicing Catholics, um, you know, in, in the more mainstream way. Um, but yeah, the overwhelming majority of people just ex accepted it and, and went along with it. And I can, yeah, once again, my, my grandfather was a, um, I mean, dad, dad admits he could be a, a pain in the ass, um, <laughs> but he, he would go and visit the bishops, you know, um, in whatever location he would, and he, he would sit down and, and, and talk with them, you know, and, and he would say that a lot of them weren't, you know, weren't really enthusiastic about the changes, but they, they just went along with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and, and I think most of the, the faithful were, were in, the same, in the same boat. And that's, that's a point that actually really, really interests me because people who are put on a spot 
to make a choice about something. There's a difficult choice that has to be made. And even, you know, the investigations with David and I have been doing and the conversations we have with you and a lot of other people, we're not actually, I mean, we're making a choice to maintain something that we've been given. Mm -hmm. Um, I think a lot of other people for one reason or another have recently um, maybe been placed in a position where they've got to make choices one way or another in other areas of life. Mm -hmm. Um, We're all put in positions where we have to make choices, but the, the ability and maybe the virtue required to make a really difficult choice in life is something that recently I've think I've come to really appreciate. And that's not saying that I have the virtue to make a good choice (laughs) because I, I possibly don't. All it's saying is enormous respect and admiration for those who made difficult choices. Mm -hmm. And there's also maybe a bit of an, I don't want to say empathy, but maybe that's the word for people who couldn't bring themselves to do things like I've intellectually come to entirely accept the position and the traditional Catholicism that I was gifted as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that doesn't mean that when people for, you know, maybe it's just out of, they, they can't bring themselves to make a decision. Um, I don't feel like I think cruelly of them. I, th- I think there is so much confusion, so much difficulty um, that maybe it just leads to an increased gratitude for what it is we do have mm-hmm. um, because, but, but for the grace of God, go I, maybe that's the point. Um, that's, that's... I think that's something that I've really come to understand recently because I'm a rat bag. And <laughs> if I was born any other way, <laughs> God help us all. Yeah. That's, that's something that Rudy and I talk about a lot on the channel here is uh, we have two phrases. One is a tale of two churches and the other one is, is a great divorce. And not quite in the C.S. Lewis way on that last one, but how we're all children of a fallout that, in our in our lady opinion, uh, it's a war the church not how to wage. You know, once upon a time, your guys' grandfather, us actually, all of us had this decision, but everyone woke up and went. I feel like the faith that I've understood for the entirety of my life is being changed, and people are insisting that I'm the one going crazy for feeling it. It's somehow okay now that a priest is denying the real presence. And if I am to say something about that, that's a problem. Um, You know, for us over here, a lot of it is, especially in the case of, of, you know, with the quarantine and Rudy and I had a little micro series on a sense of life and lockdown where we would have our, it was the first time we started our video podcast and we weren't next to each other. but we were we were really genuinely scandalized in the actual usage of the word by the fact that for decades at this point, as as Catholics, we would go to mass and we would hear the stories of all these brave martyrs and saints and Christ Himself who would go out to heal lepers and be not afraid and all this other kind of stuff. And then it seemed like a lot of the churches gleefully shut shut themselves off in a world where liquor stores and Costco was open. Um, you know, this is one sin with the archdiocese in Los Angeles, and I say the story because it's a very true thing, but our priests at St. Vitus were building socially distanced confessions before preemptively, and it, that wasn't even enough for the archdiocese. The archdiocese told them to shut it down, and so there was a stretch where 
you you couldn't go to mass you couldn't receive confession um rudy has a whole thing with his father in last rites and at a, at an at a so-called catholic hospital how it's very clear that the salvation of souls is not the priority for some people and um you know in my family i come from a family where i'm the only one of my siblings and i'm really the only one even in my extended family maybe a couple of blurbs in the in the ether that that's understood and gone traditional catholic um love the love the upbringing that I had, you know, growing up in the Novus Ordo environment that I did, I'm grateful for it because it taught me the love of Jesus. But one thing that I think is so interesting about your guys' story, especially with your grandfather and the conversation between Lefebvre and him is that you're not talking about a priest in one of the, one of the states in California, or in uh, Australia, sorry, but you're talking about sending one priest for the entirety of the country. And that's something that's so crazy for us to think about in this fight and the suppression of the old mass, it's that suddenly all these people were just, it was ripped away. And I'm always interested in people that went along with the changes. And I think it's because, again, um, most Catholics need a point in their life where they, it's almost like the Protestant conversion moment, right? I think that there's a point where you both talked about this intellectual ascent, um, which I think is, is, is absolutely beautiful. I completely agree with that. There's this moment where you have to go, this is not just that, Jesus loves me and that God exists, but this is his church and this is the manner of worship which ought to be followed. Um, I love the the woman at the wells uh, where she says, you know, our ancestors worship on this mountain. It implies that they worship in a particular way here. And that's all literally that traditional Catholics want to do. And um, maybe you can speak to this a little bit, but um, where we both in, in our different places in the States, our churches are recovated and renovated some of them some people really fought hard for their architecture i'm just curious just on the cultural level um but when we think about the catholic church in in australia what pragmatically on the ground do those churches actually look like because obviously with the history of australia it's not just like a, it doesn't seem like a catholic obviously like a foremost foremost country so are are these churches were they beautiful and were they recovated are we talking about kind of more like simple scrub churches in the ether that were changed completely or or what's the kind of balance there i'll start with you tom well let, let's talk um why why the catholic let's go back to you know the first fleet and mm. thereafter when the the first catholic clergy would have come out and the first church would have been established there are some gorgeous churches some beautiful historical churches in australia um make, make no mistake you know there maybe there is this national stereotype that Australia is sort of an outback settlement and it's come a little bit of a long way since then, yeah. believe it or not. Um, you've got Adelaide, which some people refer to as the city of churches, just this beautiful quaint capital of South Australia, Melbourne. Um, you know, it's going through a heck of a lot at the moment. And I'd say it's uh, the, the uh, direction and ideology that's governing Melbourne at the moment is as far from Catholic as you can get. But that being said, Melbourne has an extremely rich historical Catholic history. Um, you know, there are other, other influences in that, but you, you drive through Melbourne and you see these beautiful stand, uh, sandstone or bluestone churches that are, to me, beautiful. Um, Sydney, Brisbane, there's a couple of stunning churches there. Um, tradition, uh, slightly different. There are a few churches that we've scored from 
um, in terms of we've either inherited them or we've been able to make a good deal with a reluctantly willing seller. Um, but I think to, to understand tradition in Australia, you almost have to take a missionary perspective. And I think that would explain, you know, we, we use what we can get. So, for example, the, the main parish church in Brisbane, uh, I believe, was a, it's, it was converted from a Protestant hall. And some people come in and go, gosh, this is the ugliest church I've ever seen. Um, which David, David gets kicked out of that it's one. It's not far from the truth. Architecturally, <laughs> is it's possibly true. But but that being said, um, for what what it stands for and what it's done over time, it's a beautiful. It's got a beautiful story, mm-hmm. and it is a beautiful church because it's it's been there for so long, and it's given the faithful that have come to it so much. So so I think. In understanding the society's position, um, you sort of have to understand that missionary kind of history, and I think it's still living through that wider traditional Catholic circles. Um, for example, you've got some indults, you've got um, uh, or, oratorian, oratory. oratory. Yeah. Sorry, that's gotcha. what I'm thinking of. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe due to uh, some beneficial relationships with uh the diocese they've been a little more fortunate in terms of the architecture they've they've been given um but um yeah look it it is what it is and you you have to follow the story closely i think Mm -hmm. to understand those things and in interestingly enough though um talking about you you cast your mind back to those stories of the early days when there was literally one catholic or one, one traditional priest dispatched from wherever to, you know, administers to all the faithful in Australia. And I think if you look back historically, even retrospectively, um, you could almost say, but for that precarious position, then the entire traditional Catholic landscape worldwide would have been entirely different. Um, so I, I think whether you're oratorian, whether you're indult, um, I, th- I think we are, you know, maybe strong statement of the day. I think we're all standing. David will agree with me on this. Uh, we're all standing on the shoulders of the tough decisions of Archbishop Lefebvre, mm. I think, back back in those tough times. It's interesting, too, that a lot of the conversations that we're having nowadays in um, traditional Catholic circles, you know, like with um, uh, Traditionis Custodis, you know, it's really opening up those questions that we thought were were sort of settled you know like um are we just going to go along with it are people are going to stand and fight this will tradition prevail again and i think people have gotten into the position where they have to ask those questions that archbishop lefebvre uh, had to you know answer in his time are we going to continue to uh stand and, and hold fast to the traditions that, that we've been given, or are we just going to go along with this new right that we've seen um, be, in many cases, a detriment to people's faith? Not always, obviously, but, you know. But that, that's, if I can comment on that quickly, that's sure. such an interesting point to me because, you, you know, you can, 
it's so easy with so many of these discussions to get caught up in the minutia and make them very academic. And a lot of them are academic, but there have some, there have been some beautiful, 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 that's a good word. Um, beautiful, uh, people in my life who have sort of approached it with a simplicity and phrases as straightforward as, you know, Oh yeah, just look at the fruits, look at what happened. And once again, that can be something as a young kid, you sort of roll your eyes at, but growing older and getting that increased level of exposure to what goes on around. Mm -hmm. And when I say, you know, around and out there in the world, I can even tend at times to feel somewhat conflicted because a lot of my closest friends um, are not the same way. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are, you know, lapsed Catholic, fallen away Catholic, not Catholic at all, Um, atheistic. But if there was something which really convinced me that, you know, if you're going to be Catholic, you're going to be traditional Catholic was the increased level of exposure I got to those who, those friends of mine or peers, um, even colleagues who were the product of, as my grandmother would say, the changes. Um, (laughs) And it's, it, it's so stark and it's so true. The vast majority of them um, have given their faith away. And you almost think, well, why wouldn't they? It was mm-hmm. so trite and so even if it was administered with the best of intentions, it was kind of pathetic and that's what they saw. Um, this would be interesting to get I, – I know – you, Rudy and Jordan, have different backgrounds and you had to make all these choices. And it's, it's completely different for David and me. And I, it's easy for me to say this because I knew nothing else. So I was coming from a, a very staunchly traditional foundation and then observing and contrasting. And so the only choice I had to make was sort of compare and contrast that with <laughs> how I thought and then draw a conclusion. And to me, that was very obvious. You know, somebody calls themselves Catholic or they start, distancing themselves from their mm. Catholicism. Catholicism lame. Catholicism is lame. Um, you know, I don't go to church or la-di-da. Um, but it, it was just insanely obvious to me that if you were going to bother with the Catholic thing, there was only one way to do it yeah. um, because there was only one way that took it seriously. Well, speak on this a little bit, David, because, you know, you you not just just being also a traditional Catholic here, but also being a father and, you know, having a little Massey clan, clearly. Um, for us, it's funny that both of you even mentioned, like, having great aunts and great uncles in the new right more, you know? And so I wonder just in terms of that family kind of perspective, people don't realize this, but the kind of war that we're waging doesn't, it's not, it's not just intellectual or historical sort of argument we're making. I think that the greatest, uh, the greatest uh, agent for the sort of reclamation of the faith comes with the Catholics have been doing for centuries, which is that you, that at one point you literally just have to make enough babies to pass down the faith. You know, what we've, what we've been inherited, you know, we, we are a missionary sorts of people, but also we're, we build up the home church. And so, with your seven children, especially, do you kind of see that entrenchment for the next generation? What does what does that landscape look like positively? Um, because we, you know, Rudy has a child, God willing, we'll have children, you know, so um, you can kind of see what the battle's really about in those instances. Yes, certainly. Um, it's, I mean, I'll, I'll be honest, it, it's a, it's a frightening time 
to be a parent um, right now. And, you know, I, you know, there are moments where I go, what, what is life going to look like for my children in 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Um, and then I look back at my own upbringing and the degradation of society that's happened, let's say, over the last decade is, has been exponential almost. Um, and, you know, we can, we can talk about things, things were, were, were bad back in the day. Um, they were, there, there were these changes that were happening that were starting to erode the, a, a real solid Catholic foundation. Um, but th there was generally still some upholding of morality and, and um, value of the family environment and structure. And I, I have seen that um, be attacked so much over the last decade. Um, however, having said that, you know, it, it's it's the only it's the only answer. I think you're you're right, um, Jordan. Um, and there's so much happiness and joy that you get from participating and and doing. Uh, doing that that role in in terms of any restoration um and it, it, it's quite simple in the end if if that's if you're called to if that's your calling in life that's the the state that god has called you to then the the most important thing is to yep yeah, try and be the best um husband and father that you can and i think in this day and age um having a real generosity and, and trust in in god's providence is extremely important because we all know that um god gives back a hundredfold um in in generosity and look it's it, it's not easy being a father of of six children with with one on one on the way um they're all young i mean even without being Catholic or, or trying to pass on the faith to your children, just living with a large family in, in this day and age is, is more difficult than it ever has been. Mm -hmm. um, especially with, with my wife, who is a stay at home mother. Um, you know, so we, we have a, a single income and it's, it's not as difficult to get by with a single income as a lot of people will try and tell you mm -hmm. it sometimes means a little bit of sacrifice and you, you go without some things and you know we're comfortable um but it's not an easy thing um but when when you see when when you see these these children and and m my children go to a society of saint pius the tenth school which um very um fortunate to have have nearby and 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 you see that the the formation that they receive for first confession and first communion and i have my son Raphael, who's just made his first confession and will be making his first communion um next month mm. um and you look at the the thorough formation um and teaching that that they they get in that environment and 
they're fortunate to have um, other family and, and friendships, um, good influences um, on, on them. And that gives you a lot of um, hope for the future. And you've got to have that hope. Um, Catholicism should be joyful. Um, it should be joyful whether, whether you're being left alone to practice and propagate the faith. It should be joyful whether you're being persecuted because ultimately, um, you know, we, we all know what the most important things are. Um, so, yeah, that, that generosity with, I suppose, accepting the children that God sends you, mm-hmm. um, that, that's, that's a huge thing, I think, um, because it's, it's not always easy to, to, I suppose, give up your own will and, and somewhat of your comfort um, and just go, well, if you send us children, we'll do our best with them you know and maybe i'm the only one here who's actually qualified to speak on this point because i'm the only one who is who has successfully clung to the single lifestyle uh <laughs> th- th- thus far hey. um, well after but- this podcast you better you better watch <laughs> out you know <laughs> yeah not at all um but ultimate respect for parents um and as as somebody who had parents, I believe I had parents. I had two of them and I knew them. Um, recently lost one. But a beautiful, such a beautiful family um, and two parents who I don't think could have done more for me in terms of giving me the best chance and giving themselves the best chance to be able to, at the end, um, I, when, when my dad passed away, I don't think he could have done more for me in terms of giving me the gift that he was given, which I think is the goal of every parent to pass on what you've been given and fingers crossed, maybe leave the world and your children in a better position than you were in. Mm. That being said, there's then the individual factor. Um, there's, there's the me part and that's that's what frightens me in terms of when when you have kids and you look at the state of the world and being born traditionally catholic and have you know having been gifted it on a silver platter i i think there is an enormous reality uh and a a danger I don't want to call it, maybe it's a danger. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a great thing, but it's from my perspective, maybe it's just my personality. Not having had to fight for something means there's an emotional element that you will never have. Um, you can intellectually justify something. You can have those moments of joy and gratitude that you're on this side of the fence. But at the end of the day, if you didn't have to, if you didn't have to go through some emotional tumultuous struggle and make a choice to have something um that's a big thing and to me if i feel that um what one of the i guess the the target the intended target audiences for the this, the bread and butter lounge room chat i do with young people um like when when i sat down with david however many millions of years ago it was and heard david's <laughs> awesome story you know it's 
it's what it's trying to do, I guess, is hit at issues in terms of why would a young person like you make the decision to be a Catholic, be traditionally Catholic, make the sacrifices involved with being a parent and having children and going for that traditional family model. Because in this day and age, it doesn't make sense. You are actually looked on as peculiar and Mm -hmm. strange and society works against (laughs) you. And if you're not caught up in that struggle in terms of the immediacy of it, um, God help. I, I, and so I think that the struggle is trying to cultivate that appreciation in some way for your children. Um, and the only, the only reason I say that is I think that's sort of what my parents in one way or another tried to do with us. And I'm not sure how effective they were in it, but I think that's what everybody's got to do with, you know, something they're trying to pass on. You've got to pass on an appreciation for something that, the kid may just not understand, um, but you've given the importance of it. You know, it's it's the, that that first Christmas present the kid gets that isn't a toy. It's actually infinitely more important than the toy, but it's not a toy. So the kid mm. frowns and you're like, "Don't worry, kid. Trust me on this. This is worth it." <laughs> yeah. And you're, you're just <laughs> trusting that one day the kid's going to go. You know what? Yeah, my dad was right. Mm. Um, something like that. It's a it's a it's a scary time. But that's, joyous. Yes. <laughs> that's uh, that's something that I wanted to to kind of uh, dig deeper on, uh, David. You know, I, I'm a a new father myself. Um, you you obviously have had more experience uh, with that uh, than I have. But one of the fears, and Jordan and I talk about this often too, is um, you know we want our kids to just kind of inherit the faith and and make it so that it's, it's nothing, um, controversial, you know, cause for us, I think we, we experience a sort of controversial aspect of the faith. We want to be Catholic. We want to hold fast to tradition, but it's so often like really hard to do that. Um, not, not just, you know, interiorly, but exteriorly, uh, we can't find the mass, you know, people can't go anywhere or, uh, the, the mass becomes suppressed or, you know, that sort of thing. But um, we, we talk about how we want to just have this, this sort of normal uh, experience for our, our children. But in talking to both of you, it sort of seems that, um, that there was a moment in your, in your interior life where you, you had to sort of realize what you had and, and make, as you said, like a choice to continue it and to to uh, not just to continue it, but also to, to do it ardently, to, to do it, um, you know, authentically. Um, could you both speak to um, what that moment was for you? That, that moment that really changed your perspective where, where you realized, okay, I have a pearl of great price here. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to make sure that I live a certain way to keep it or to maintain this. Yeah. For me, um, and, you know, I have seen your uh, episode about Ignatian retreats with mm. um, Father Burford, which which I really enjoyed. For me, um, I went on an Ignatian retreat when I finished high school. My, my parents, 
you can't help being influenced by the world uh, as, as a teenager. You, you can't. And I think some parents I have seen can make them the mistake where they try and shelter their children from any outside influence, which I think is absolutely counterproductive um, because you, you have to live in the world. You, you don't want to be of the world, but you have to be in the world. Mm. Um, and I, I think it, it's very important that you don't try and close off your children too much. You, you do want to um, sort of put some barriers and, and try and ensure that you that your children have good friendships, etc. But you can't just shut people off. Um, and that, that's an that's an important um, perspective for, for parents. And, and I, I look at myself when I was um, 17, almost 18, I finished high school and I took, you know, largely I had, I practiced, I believe. So I, I never, I never had a moment where I thought God doesn't exist or does God really exist or is, is this all a facade? You know, I, I never struggled in terms of faith, but you you start picking up some of those worldly influences, um, and and I had definitely picked them up myself, despite a a very solid upbringing that my parents had given me, and I, I think they could probably see it, and so they really encouraged me to go on on a retreat when I um, finished high school. So I, I, I did an Ignatian retreat. Um, Looking back, I think I was probably too young um, at, at, you know, almost 18 years of age. I, I won't say it was detrimental, but I certainly didn't get out of it what you probably should from an Ignatian retreat. And it wasn't until um, probably three or four years later, we, we had a new priest come, come to our parish who was um, very devoted to the Ignatian retreats and, and really um, made that his mission. He ended up putting on, you know, three or four retreats for men and women each year and really pushed the parishioners to go and do it. And, and even beyond that, he had some involvement in, in our youth group where <clears throat> rather than, you know, my, my experience with youth groups had been, uh, I suppose, a little bit vanilla. You know, it was, well, we're, we're all like-minded. We come and we, we have that social aspect. But there was what I think I needed and what this priest um, sort of introduced to, to the, the youth group that we had was a more intellectual aspect where he would say, here's a book. Um, often, I, I think the first one was They Have Uncrowned Him by Archbishop Lefebvre. And, you know, as a, as a 21, 22-year-old, I wasn't, you know, going to dad saying, I need your copy of this book. I really want to read it. Um, but, you know, he, he would say, for example, everyone go and read the first chapter of this book and we'll come and discuss it and I'll take you through it. And what, what are your perspectives on this? And it, it forced you to do a little bit more in the background. And then, yes, afterwards, you would have the, the social aspect, eat pizza, um, have a good time with other like-minded um, young Catholics. Um, but it was that sort of prompt to look into these things a little bit more intellectually 
And it was not long after that that I did my second Ignatian retreat. And that for me was where the, the penny dropped. And I actually did a, a really good, I, I was a little bit more mature. Um, um, but, but, you know, ha having six days away from the world, complete silence um, and having a bit more openness to it myself. And, and that, that was, that was the, the sort of moment for me where I thought, um, you know, after that retreat, after that general confession, which is just the most enormous relief um, I think you can almost have in life, mm -hmm. um, was I walked away from that retreat, still had all my faults and particular fault and all these issues I need to work on and still need to work on. But that's when it sort of dropped for me that, no, I, I do believe this. I, I mean, I, I never doubted it, but I, I had a real firm belief that, that this is real. This is what God wants. And if I believe that, I now need to actively conform my life to that. Um, so, so for me, that, that was sort of the moment um, that 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 moment and, and it's that moment that that everyone has to come to and especially those of us who have been given it you need to you need to really consent to it um and make a very conscious decision that this is what i want mm -hmm. and i'm now going to live it mm, it's amazing yeah the the ignatian spiritual exercises are really a powerful weapon for you to uh, to apply into your life this this reality that you know this is god this is what he did for me this is what the church teaches and and this is who i am i'm a, a sinner i have all of these different things that are preventing me from really experiencing the grace of god and those exercises really give you an opportunity to to make a game plan and yeah, I, I think everybody that I've met who's done the exercises in, in some way, shape or form, I've never actually done them formally the way that they were supposed to do. I've, I've done like a truncated version um, where, you, you know, you kind of show up one day out of the week, but you're still living in the, in the mm -hmm. world. You know, it's not like a, a retreat house. Um, but everybody that I've talked to that's been through that particular uh, Ignatian exercise or even the, the actual ones, their life completely changes. I, I totally recommend for people to, to really make that, that effort to take that, that Ignatian spiritual exercise retreat. Mm -hmm. And let's be honest. I mean, six days away from, from your work, six days away from your wife, from your kids and stuff. That's really, you know, it's, it's, it seems ardent, you know, it seems like a really, um, arduous thing. I mean, um, but, it's such a huge investment into your spiritual life. You know, think of how much that's going to pay out or how much of an investment that is that could pay out for your family returning home, you know, with, with that sense of, uh, yeah. of clarity. Um, I, I will ahead. just, just say in terms of Ignatian retreats, I think, I think it's very important not to, to push anyone to it. I think that there can be encouragement um, and, you know some some gentle prodding um but i've i've also seen the other side of it um and you know i i have a a sibling who um no longer practices the faith 
Um, and, you know, I think my parents had some inkling that, that there were some issues at the time and, and they not, I won't say forced and, and certainly that they encouraged her to do a, do a retreat. But if, if your heart isn't in it, um, then you won't get anything out of it. And, and I feel like my, my sibling in that situation didn't. Um, uh, so I, I think it, it takes a great humility um, because I'll be honest, I, I think I've done three or four um, in total. And each, each time there's part of me that goes, I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, you know, it, it's not an easy thing to do. And it takes a great deal of, of humility um, to, to go, wow, I need to revisit in detail all this sinfulness of the past three, four, five years, you know, and who wants to do that? Um, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not an easy thing. So I, I think you, you need to also come to, it, it takes humility and just go, all right, yes, the thought of it, the concept might be painful, but I just have to humble myself and go and I know God will reward you. Um, so I, I absolutely recommend it um, to, to anyone who has, has the means, yeah. Yeah. And for Tom, for you, I know that in your story that, that you told us uh, when we were on with you, uh, you had this thing where you would learn the, what the ontological arguments for the existence of God was trying it out on a friend who didn't believe. And um, if I remember correctly, he, he asked you, he was just like, well, what does, what does that mean? What does ontological mean? And it was like, how's the cards, right? You know, moving down. And so I think that's such a, that's such a beautiful thing to, to, to talk about, especially off of of David's uh, story there, and we'll we'll pray for your sister. I um, mean, for for everyone, because you know I have, or um, you know, for all of our siblings, you know, we all have people that have have gone away from the faith. And one thing that always breaks my heart is that you get these calls into different Catholic shows, and it's like, oh, my child, my my brother, my son, my whatever has left the faith. How do I get it back? And um, I think you know, for all of us on the path that we're on, you know, there is an acceptance of, of God's love and his grace that you have to agree to. You can have the intellectual argument, you can have the, the steps of, of spiritual renewal, yeah. but if, if the will, if the heart hasn't given over to Christ, then, you know, then you're not going to get anything. It is literally just smells and bells. Wouldn't you say Tom? Wow. (laughs) This is such a, uh, such i i always say oh that's so interesting this is particularly interesting <laughs> that's gonna be your next show you know oh, that's it's very this this is interesting we'll go with yeah. that um oh. this is something that's particularly close to my heart i think because um we're talking about you know road to damascus moments i never had one i've never had one um i don't think my parents could have given me a better catholic upbringing mm-hmm. than they did uh, maybe I'm looking at that through, you know, biased rose-colored glasses, but that—that's how I see. Um, and you combine that with my personality. I'm very loyal to whatever flag it is, I guess, that's hoisted to mm-hmm. the the family mast. Um, I may maybe that's part and parcel of my my American citizenship. You know, I was a devoted. Uh, student of the red and white, my school colours, very passionate American, 
um, I'm a very, I'm, I'm very passionate about my faith. Um, but something that hit me uh, at some point when I was growing up, um, it was, you know, page one of the, the imitation of Christ. And I can't remember what the, the phrase or the sentence is, but sort of paraphrasing it. It's, you know, what good is it to be able to define charity if you don't have charity? You know, you can know all that. You can understand the Trinity. You can know all the secrets of the world. But if you don't love and you don't follow the commandments, you know, mm -hmm. what is the point? And that's always been the interesting thing um, that I've struggled to understand about both myself and people. And the reason I love having these conversations is they're kind of, they're kind of therapeutic for me. They're counseling sessions. I get to talk to people <laughs> who I, I admire. Um, but I also, I see myself as asking questions on behalf of a category of people who struggle um, and who have struggled. And how do you solve that conflict between having an intellectual acceptance and even a love of something, but you struggle to be true to it? And I, I don't know if you can intellectually understand it, but the struggle is real because there are so many people who struggle with the faith. There are so many people who end up um, leaving it because of a continued struggle. Um, I've definitely struggled over the years. Um, and it's, it's something that I'm, you know, I, I don't particularly like talking about, but anybody who knows me, will know that I've, I've definitely made a lot of mistakes and I've struggled with things. And they're the moments, it's sort of ironic, I think, when I've maybe taken that step forward because it's only when you feel like you've lost something that you appreciate it. It's sort of, it, it doesn't make more sense. You know, the, the intellectual element is there, but to me, there's always been a separation between the, well, there is, there's a separation between the intellect and the emotions, mm. but you have to fuse the two at some stage to propel yourself in that, in that direction. Um, and so <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really sure where, where I'm going with this, but I've, I've never had a road to Damascus mm. moment. It's a, I've, I've always struggled with certain things, but I've tried to sort of propel myself in a direction that I go so long as I'm doing that, I'm probably giving myself half a chance, giving myself a better chance. If I try and, you know, familiarize myself with other people who have gone through the similar struggles, mm. um, who have believed everything that I believed, but struggled in the same ways that I've struggled. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe that gives me and other people like me uh, a, a better chance at, you know, getting that 51% on the, uh, the big exam that we're all going to sit one day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um, but it's, it's extremely difficult. And that's what, the, what you do take away, though. And what I have heard from talking to other people, they all say it, Catholicism is beautiful and to me I, th I think that's one of the things that pains me more than anything is I, I i appreciate that and that's that's one of the things that has always kept me going it's mm -hmm. it's an appreciation for the beauty inherent in catholicism you can you can kick it you can do the wrong thing by it but 
it's truth. And in that truth is a beauty. In that truth is a solace, a peace that if you just reconcile yourself with it, it will give you everything that it promises to give you. Um, peace, stability, joy, happiness. It's, it's not by happenstance that we call our podcast a glad job podcast. Mm. I think that there is a, now we know it's confirmed, there is a worldwide movement of traditional Catholics in actions. If I, I've, my joke is that if social media or if YouTube had existed at the time of the council, can you imagine <laughs> how much more uppity Catholics would have been? <laughs> because because isolation, you know, your grandfather riding the fev, us yeah. us all being here on this place, I mean, the whole world would have changed. And so, for us and Rudy, you know, there there is a moment for laughter. There's a moment for war. Resus et bellum. And um, we try to do a little bit of both. We started this podcast because genuinely we found a deeper love of Christ through the traditional Latin mass and through the traditional forms of piety, devotions, and histories. I mean, there was just, and it wasn't, it wasn't just a dunk on Novus Ordites, although that's, you know, it can be kind of fun to do, not going to lie. Uh, most of them knew mass and how crazy it could be, but it really is. Some of them deserve that, it. Well, yeah. So, oh, yeah. We just so we just we just went through a a climate, <laughs> uh, a very hippy dippy climate mass at the LA Rec in 2016. So sometimes you look at that and you're like, you know, you got you got to call a duck a duck. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's it's all motivated, and this is what I love about traditionalists now, especially, is that our grandfathers and our parents they were really in in the trenches in ways that we've had hints of, and and sometimes we've gone to the trenches, but like they had the faith ripped away in such a violent manner. And if they spoke up about it, you know, Michael Matt at the Remnant, your guys' grandfather, they were called rad trads. They were pushed to the farthest corners of the empire. I mean, these people, this is why we say, we're like, we're not, um, we're not sorry our need to apologize for if, especially some of our older trad ancestors had a bit of an ax to grind because they found themselves at war unwittingly and they just had to do it. You know, the cavalry wasn't coming. And for us now, it's nice that there's a sort of war that we're finding ourselves in now, but it's the stakes are the stakes are different, but also the battlefield has changed completely. Um, it's not crazy uh, to be called a rad trad. You're just like, eh, whatever. It's it's <laughs> It's not, everyone knows it's easy to see that, you know, the traditional, traditionalist inside Catholicism, they're not just a bunch of angry old fuddy-duddies clinging on to their desire to say their rosarios all throughout a mass or something. I mean, it's, it's vibrant because people in our age group, if they're, not, if they're not falling in love with the faith in its authentic form, they're leaving the faith. You know, mm, and, and how, the, so, and I think the question becomes, how do you fall in love with it because my, my message would be as i think you know our collective message would be that catholicism is beautiful mm -hmm. and it's worth loving but so many people who especially the, the ones who grow up in it see it as a series of prescriptions and proscriptions mm -hmm. do this don't do that you can do this you can't do that you've got to be here at this time on this day of the week otherwise you're in the state of sin you know what it is um, it's 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 regimented and yeah. so yeah. Is, is it possible without engaging in the intellectual rigor to see beyond that, to see the, the fullness of it? Well, there you go. David, what do you think first? Because we're both, all of us yeah. are. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think it is extremely important 
to as as you you are titled the 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 glad element of it um is is extremely important um i, I have seen you know all types of the stereotypical um latin mascara over my 35 years so I, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen them all and there's an element of truth in all of them you know that there there absolutely are the ones who um only focus on the negatives all the time and are obviously not happy and it's a broad and church it is a broad church um and look look some of them have legitimate reasons to be unhappy but ultimately i think there's something missing from from your faith if if you can only focus on the negatives because it living a catholic uh life it it, it should it should be joyful and mm-hmm. and i think as as a as a father and as someone who was lucky enough to grow up with a a wider you know a, an extended family who all had the same values but but we had fun you know our family gatherings were were fun gatherings um, they still are my thought <laughs> oh, they are we, yeah. we just had had our um cousin's wedding on the weekend mm-hmm. um and it, it was so much fun you know that means real quick a, that a means that means a marriage on saturday confession on sunday is that correct <laughs> <laughs> i need more time to prepare not, yeah not <laughs> maybe back in the day um but yeah it it just it's 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 a it's a joyous occasion but it's fun but even beyond those sort of very special moments um you know i I can remember going and and visiting my my grandmother as a you know six or seven year old with my other first cousins and you'd go and, and play have a great time lots of good food my Mum and dad and aunts and uncles would crack open the beer and and the wine and and you know we'd have a good time and then it it'd get towards the evening and you know we'd um, sit down and and say the rosary together and it was you know that was Easy. the yeah. the um, you know would I have been there for that? It, it wasn't this entire focus on on catholicism all the time but there there were always those moments that would go all right the focus is on god and Mm. our faith and and it it was a very um striking thing as as a child to to see that and 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 think back on that as well um so i I think that that's that's a really good illustration of of how i think things should be um, it's it's not always easy. I mean, as you say, not people don't always have those connections. Those um, family units don't always have uh, you know a wide group of friends. But in in whatever group you have, I think it's important to celebrate the the major feasts. Mm-hmm. And if you drink, have some have some wine, have a good time. Um, don't don't be puritanical um and 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 be joyful you know mm-hmm. there's I still that. so many opportunities to to have fun um, mm-hmm. as, as a catholic and as a traditional catholic 
it more you know it's funny that i because america of course our our history is is so deeply innately puritan and anyone that you know did a little bit of digging past their high school textbook knows that the reason they're puritans is because they found the church of england to be too catholic so <laughs> i've always said that uh, that we've inherited some of that just across the culture clearly it, it it can be especially sometimes in traditional catholicism but for the american society i think it's a pendulum it's it's moving towards puritan you know puritan regulation of morality and it's moving mm-hmm. anti that and inside uh, traditional catholicism i see that too is kind of the great frontier it's that um part of our joyous thing is also just to fight against the fact that it's not just rig- rhythm and regimentation um the faith, mm-hmm. the faith is first and foremost a love story. It's a story about how God so loved the world, he incarnate in the flesh. And I think that the, the heart of especially why we do the things that we do, why all of us here push for a holy week that doubles its time, why all of us would be happily sit two hours in mass with six, seven screaming kids, whatever it is, um, it's because of the love story. If, if, you know, the analogy I think about it is that when I saw Genevieve, I knew that she was beautiful and I would later find out that she was good and holy, but also, you know, I didn't dictate what sort of perfume she wore. I, I responded to it because it was beautiful and good, but I didn't, I didn't dictate that, you know, I, I didn't have a bear set. It's, it's a, it's a will of the heart. And so this is what I think is a way of the faith and why the smells and bells and the things our ancestors did matter. I didn't I didn't dictate why it's plain chant or why it's polyphony or why the incense is a particular way or why Christmas or midnight mass or whatever lasts three, four, five hours. But it's like it's a love story. And so, you know, it's it's if you realize that the amount of grace and love that God pours out on us, we can't even fathom, we can't even calculate. Our concept of time, our concept of boredom, our concept of tradition, everything, it all melds away because it's not even worth one iota for just how intimately deep God loves you and wants to be with you. And, you know, if that's the heart of the faith, that it's no wonder that as we see this pendulum in the church swinging back, that it, it's not just, it's not just trads who want to make a statement against a lot of the craziness they've seen, but more and more, those also were just so speaking in the positive too, or realizing that there's this, like, this great tradition and now they get to be a part of that too. Beautiful. Oh, thank you. You know, my Academy Award hope. <laughs> <laughs> As we wind down, there, there's one question I have, and I'm sure Rudy has one more too, but I just have this one and I'll, I'll have you both because I've been dying to ask it. Uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a change of gears, but it's related. So Rudy and I, uh, we are we are uh, buddies and one of the person who's been on our podcast quite a bit is uh, the esteemed Charles Colomb, who is a wonderful commentator, author, and also the first monarchist that I'd ever met in my life. So we had a whole episode where we talked about what, what monarchism is with the traditional Thomas, we talked about integralism. So we've been kind of, you know, we've been really flirting with this thing but we've never actually lived in a monarchy because we were the ones that said, forget that, I'm going home. So <laughs> Australia, Australia is still part of the Commonwealth, right? Yes. Okay, it, good. It, it. So, so tell, tell us across the way, you know, so when we, we talk about monarchism, it's a sort of, um, it's a sort of a hypothetical notion. And um, there's a book Charles Clum wrote called um, Star Spangled Crown, which is that if a monarchy came to the United States, what might that actually look like? And if it was a Catholic one, might, what might it look like? 
considering that you are both technically subjects of the queen, what does that actually feel like, actually? <laughs> I'll just let you know, T today is actually um, the queen's birthday oh my public gosh. holiday. She's going to live forever. In Australia. <laughs> yeah. So it's not actually the queen's birthday. I don't mm. actually know when her real birthday is. But yes, we, we get the queen's birthday national holiday every year and today's the day i was under the impression that y'all just celebrated the king or queen's birthday on july the 4th just to kind of <laughs> <laughs> rub it in that's that's um, my wife's birthday hey happy birthday so, yes good day for freedom <laughs> yeah no look it's, it's actually a really interesting question because uh, that the legal technicalities aside, which you'd probably need to delve into to really mm. understand the current landscape in that regard, um, it's token at best. You know, gone are the days where the monarch has the power required for the monarchy to mean mm. anything. Um, there's been a, a lot of acts passed which have since, you know, shifted where the power is held. And so... I think, you know, there's still, there's, there's probably one coming up in the not too distant future. You have the, uh, the, the Republicans, um, who get together, uh, anti-monarchists, mm -hmm. um, who want to push, we'll have a referendum. And the question will be, you know, do we, we lose the monarchy and go with a, I guess what you'd call a Republic. And that is yet to get through which is absolutely fascinating. Mm. It's nothing to, to my mind, but a sentimental attachment. Um, I love the tradition, even though the crown is church of England. Mm. Um, I still love the idea of not kicking out your, your past, your identity purely for the sake of it, you know, holding on to what is good in the past and sifting through the dross and identifying and clinging to things that, are worth holding on to mm. um but in reality uh david would you agree that there is very little real influence or impact uh that the monarchy has on our day-to-day -day, day lives yes yeah uh, it's 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 very symbolic um, the governor general now that's about yeah. this i think it <laughs> still has yeah. some i think it's still um emotionally and, and even intellectually to a point has some um influence on on people and and yes I, i'm i'm with tom i i like the concept of it that that there is still a a monarchy even if it is largely symbolic these days um it's it's interesting um but you know it does go back also to the very protestant roots of australia as well mm -hmm. um and that's something we didn't really touch on earlier but yeah the the catholics coming to australia very missionary because we were a very protestant country you know very much under the direction of uh england and their monarchy um but yeah we we have lots of i mean we've got the statue of queen victoria or up in in one of the main squares in the city of Brisbane here. Um, there's a statue of King George. You know, there's lots of symbols of that heritage, um, which is is interesting. It, it I I like that, um, but I think uh, maybe not inevitable. But it wouldn't surprise me if if over the next 
decade or two, Australia votes to become a republic. Mm-hmm. I don't get that. I just, I simply don't understand that. Why people would want to start a republic. I mean, just look at what's going on here in the United States. It almost doesn't, it's like meaningless, you know? Well, we're having the, well, There's we're no having representation here. <laughs> Republic in for for you guys it would be that there, there's the president and the prime minister right though that the, the executive is kind of split in the two ways where here in the United States it's one, which is why we've kind of yes. all we've just had we've in the United States technically just had soft kings every four eight years, if you see our like drift of power, yeah. but they're not very they're not very good ones and they don't even look cool so. <laughs> I have a question about Australia. You know, I've never actually sat down with two people who actually live there. Um, But here in the United States, we're going through a sort of um, a sort of a revision of our history. Uh, We were taking down uh, monuments. We're taking down anything that has any semblance of the past whether it's um, you know something that we agreed with or not, or there's a there's a really modern way of looking at the past with just that a modern perspective. You know, it sort of diminishes what the past is. We we compartmentalize it into something else because we have this sort of perspective for it. Is there anything like that going on in Australia? And and the reason I ask this is because you mentioned that there's you know, um, statues of, of the queen in, you know, a certain part of, of town. Do you ever imagine that they would take something like that down? Or is there like a lot of people there who are just wanting to get away from, from their heritage? Do you want to answer first, Dave? Uh, sure. Um, <laughs> look, I, I no, I, I can't see that happening in, in the short term. So um, we, we've, I sort of watch a little bit of what goes on in, in the United States and, and around the world. So I, uh, I've seen that they've been tearing down statues of General Lee, for example, was it? Mm-hmm. Punipero um, Serra. Even Honest uh, Abe gets a run every once in a while, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So I've seen that happening. Um, obviously, that's. Do you think that's truly representative of um, the a, a shift in attitudes um, in in the United States, or do you think that that's being driven by more an a minority that's trying to impose that sort of view on the majority, because? We, we have some similar undercurrents here politically, um, but it doesn't manifest itself not so far like it can in, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Mm. That's, yeah, that's killer. I think it seems, it seems like it's, it's a little bit of both. Um, this ties back to the Second Vatican Council, right? We, we're sitting yeah. in the aftermath and we're going, how the heck was Lefebvre the only one essentially a name that was crazy enough to to do the only real sane thing you know like how is it that that everyone knows his name and there's not the other ones you know that's crazy is it you know wouldn't there have been more people how is it that my grandfather who was born in the 1930s you know and, and is, is a good catholic man very devout but far better catholic than i am um but how is it that that there were not little revolts happening in little podunk villages in New Mexico or on the East Coast or, you know, Fulton J. Sheen didn't lead a riot to the Capitol or something. 
and I can only, <laughs> yeah. and that's what it seems like. It seems like, you know, in, in history, what I've been discovering is that there is a minority of zealots on both sides. There, the, the, those of the Second Vatican Council, those reformers, those progressives who are really hell-bent, they were, they were a small amount. There was a small amount of hardcore traditionalists the Ottavianis uh, and the Lefebvre's who were like, wait a second, this is a line here, that's ridiculous. And then it seems like, to, there's a term that Rudy used uh, for a particular excellency that I like so much, which is that their majority of, of people are company men. Uh, they, they are just looking which way the wind blows and are figuring out how to kind of survive in these sorts of moments. I think that's what's happening today. I, I do think that politically in the United States, there is a minority that is that is in power that is or is allowed to seem like they're in power would probably be more accurate that when push comes to shove are completely paper tigers. There are far more people who are trying to survive, but there's a growing minority of zealots who are becoming jaded and tired enough and they have these conversations across culture and are realizing that they're not the only ones. Um, and so it's interesting because when when actually these two sides ever meet it's pretty decisive one way that the other side's a paper tiger. Um, this is what I also think is probably going to be true in the church, which is approaching synod of the synods of synodality that ever synoded, you know. And after we've had just round after round of getting hit in the face, I look at something like Traditionis Custodes and I go, okay, well, pragmatically, at least here in the United States, what has it actually accomplished? And the majority of bishops have been like, eh, my my fraternities and my institutes of Christ Kings aren't really bothering anybody. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put the hammer down, right? You know, I don't care less. If the Pope wants to come here and do it personally, let him go here and do it personally. There have been other ones, a very minority of them, who are like, oh, thank God, finally we can crush these buggers and off they go. So, you know, I think that that's that's kind of the state here too. And maybe it's just kind of again, we talked about this, the difference of of the national um. The, what was it the term is national identity or the national like ethos or whatever you know mm -hmm. uh, americans we are very like giddy up and go big let's just punch them in the face once bomb the hell out of them and take the oil kinds of people so <laughs> it's it's kind of cool like you know in contrast you know with people who are like all right well here's our history and like here's these pendulums but they move in, in a in a almost a less dramatic fashion sometimes uh it's it's a different mm -hmm. way of doing things i don't think would be half bad in this country Gosh, I wish that were me. <laughs> yeah, look, th you're, that, you're that's really it. interesting. <laughs> Although I wouldn't trade places with you in Australia because, you know, we're hearing all these crazy stories, which I don't know if they're true or well, not. Well, but... this, this is where I think we're seeing the two different stereotypes play out. And mm. just from a, a, I've got a dual perspective on this yeah. issue. Oh, uh, my, my red, white, and blue blood that just configures itself <laughs> half into a union Jack and some stars and the other one into, you know, the red, white, and blue stripes and, and a few more stars. Um, I've, David, our national apathy, I think is going to bite us in the rear really hard that that's my perspective and i think it's it's becoming increasingly obvious we're not as dynamic and as volatile as americans and that's that's the history you know you guys have been in how many you guys we guys yeah. have been in how many wars civil wars fought for just about 
everything rightly or wrongly, whatever. The, you know, it's a nation of fighters, mm. uh, general patterns, World War II speech. Awesome. That yeah. is the American personality, you know. Um, Australia's been a foreign participant in just about every single conflict that it's ever been a part of. It's never had a civil war. These are not faults. These are just things that inform its history. And so when it comes, what I think what's very interesting is when it comes to taking a hard stand on any sort of principle, regardless of the moral or the, the, the weight, the gravity that goes along with it, we approach it in completely different ways. Um, whether it's the government mandating something and the social response to that. Um, and that's that's not even something that I'm talking about with immediate relevance. That's just that the history of executive orders that have been implemented at a social level, we are extremely compliant. And there's a social calm that comes with that, um, you know, and you, you can sit back and you go, gee, I'd love to have that sort of lay back attitude. And I think there's, there's definitely a point to that, but at the same time, the fact that these minorities that are so small can have such a dramatic effect is a, that the biggest telltale sign that there is something really, really wrong with 99.99% of the population. And I think Australia is extremely vulnerable to that because of this, even the, the good old days, what people loved about Australia was probably its relaxed attitude. There were definitely conservative values that we've lost. And I'm not sure, yeah, you know, maybe that's just the, 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 natural, the natural byproduct of being confronted with the modern ideologies. Something's mm. going to give and where there's a moral vacuum, that's just going to fill it and nothing really confronted it. Um, but we're, we're in a really, really interesting time where I think you're dead right. I think it's entirely possible that in the not too distant future we'll be a republic. Not that that has dramatic social effect, but it's just another snipping of a, you know, a traditional linkage that we have. You look at the educational system and what's, you know, what constitutes education. That's not something that's exclusive to Australia. Everybody has eyes on America because America is the social media, the, the social, the fashion. It's the epicenter of the world, really. Um, for I don't know how much longer, but that's just the way it is. You know, New York, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, all eyes are on America. But so long as there are people populating all the different areas of the globe, those people are going to be confronting the same issues, which are, you know, we're people, we're complicated, we make moral choices. So we're going to be confronted with those choices on a day-to-day -day basis. And I, I see exactly the same battles being fought here, just with a different national personality mm. which yeah, yeah. makes the battle play out a little bit differently and i think while it may have its you know its strengths um it makes me worried yeah i i, I fear for for australia as well because we, we are a very relaxed and laid back um people uh and and tom rightly says that you know, after that initial colonization, which involved, yes, um, sort of learning to live and overcome a very harsh and remote environment, we as a nation haven't really had to, to fight for much. 
And I think we've been a very successful nation and a very prosperous nation economically. And I think that coupled with the fact that we've never really had to fight for something as a nation Mm -hmm. has really, I, I think Australians have been morally corrupted because of it. And I think there's, because of the apathy, at least in the United States, as an outsider looking in, you see, yes, there are lots of bad actors, but there are lots of people there who are prepared to stand up and oppose that. Um, there's, there, there seems to be a lot more um, strength and, and conviction than you find in Australians generally. And yeah, I, I am a little bit fearful just because we're, we're a godless country now. Um, the, all that morality that we, we had before that did come from the Protestant and, and Catholic influence has basically been eroded. Mm. And we're, we're now looking at, you know, it's, it's like the Roman Empire. Um, sort of cannibalized itself in the end it just it it became decadent of its own success and uh, i see the same thing happening generally in in the west as well and australia's at the front of that as well i think especially um new zealand and, and canada as well are uh in a lot of sense awful when it comes to politically um Australia is basically in the same boat, unfortunately. Hmm. Yeah. What, as man, I'm like, <laughs> you know what's, you know what we're gonna have to do, Rudy? We're just gonna have to get him back on at some point, aren't we? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> oh, there's so much, there's so much, but I know that that uh, if we keep talking, it'll end up being Tuesday, the day before <laughs> our Monday. So, uh, <laughs> so thank you and- both. Oh, you have wives and a child as well. I'm sure Jen's happy and being kept out of her hair. I don't know about Ashley, Rudy, but ah, uh, uh, she could take care of herself. Ah, we're the heads of household. So, <laughs> well, Sunday's for the boys. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's well, it's Just it's kidding. Monday no, it's and Sunday, and that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we are so we are so grateful for you guys to come on. You'll have to do so again. But this has been such a wonderful and engaging conversation, and it's it's good to have such strong bulwarks of the faith and a family life uh, across the ocean from us. You know, I think it's amazing how, how despite being separated by such distance, you can really feel like people are just sitting around the table with you, you know? So um, thank you both so much for our, for our listeners, please, please, please go subscribe, like comment, hit those bells, do everything that you can to support lounge room chats that is tom's uh that's tom's podcast and dave is the underpinning of that probably the reason that you're still standing so <laughs> and uh and what is the name of the website again it's the catholic corner.com or is it the, org dot org the catholic corner.org so we'll um we'll flick you the link and if you yes. want you can include yes it we shall, we oh, yeah. Sure. In, uh, yeah we should put it down below uh down under i should say haha <laughs> so <laughs> 
if you liked this uh this episode and let's be honest we know you did besides going over and subscribing to our new friends channel you can also be a subscriber of this channel hit the notification bell do all that kind of stuff we're always pumping out really fun content and if you have any episode suggestions for the future we would love to hear them or any questions that we need to ask these guys for instance what was up with the emu war that's when you knew that australia probably lost the plot right <laughs> <laughs> We'll have to whip out the history books for that uh, one, Dave. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, just playing. <laughs> I think that's everything, Rudy, wouldn't you say? I think so, yeah. Thank you so much for watching, and uh, God bless you and Mary keep you. Mm -hmm. We'll see you in the next one. Adios. God bless, God bless you both. Thank you.